And having said that, let's let's bow our heads and and let's have a word of prayer together. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for your wonderful uh, care and especially your mercy towards us. We are sinners. Uh, We have sinned against thee. We have nailed Jesus to the cross just as much as those living at that time. And we humbly ask forgiveness for our sins. We claim the promise. If we confess our sins, that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And we look forward to the cleansing that you've promised as well. Uh, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We pray for the Holy Spirit today. We ask humbly, Lord, that you will give this Spirit to us uh, to help us in our walk, to arm us for the battle, uh, to help us witness to others the love of Jesus. We also pray for the help of angels, holy angels that excel in strength to surround each one of us, the church, especially our families and our children, Most of the world has no idea what is happening all around them. They're in danger, severe danger, not just temporal danger, but for eternity. And so we lift them up before you. We lift up Kayla's aunt. We pray that you be very near to her and uh, the doctors and nurses that are caring for her. We pray for healing. And those uh, others that are on our prayer list, Father, we pray that you will be very near to them as only you can be, and heal them according to thy will. And Father, I pray that you give me the words to speak this morning. I pray that hearts will be uh, open for the truth, and may it be the truth, and may we live the truth. And I pray, Lord, that we will be found worthy when Jesus returns. We thank you so much for Jesus, his life of righteousness, being our example in all things, and help us to step out in faith. Lord, we believe, help thou our unbelief. And we pray this in the blessed name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Um, <clears throat> I want to continue our series here, um, Spiritual Possession. Uh, I'm, I mentioned it before some of you came into the room this has very uh, been very enlightening to me, and uh, we're, this battle is real, beloved. It's very, very real, and, and we'll learn as we go along here how close to home it really is um, and can be. And so I want to continue our series here, um, and this is part four, and I, I want to take a look at some examples that deal with those who were from the church or in church leadership uh, uh, that were possessed by demons. And if you don't think that someone, friends, from a good Christian home or church cannot be possessed by demons, then you really haven't been paying attention. <laughs> and, and so I want to begin by looking at this devout follower of Jesus uh, called Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. Now, in Mark 16... This is where we'll begin. Um, Mark chapter 16, verse 9. It's very interesting what is said about Mary Magdalene. It says, now when Jesus was risen, of course this is talking about uh, uh, the resurrection day. It says, now when Jesus was risen, early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Isn't that rather interesting? And it gives a description of Mary Magdalene. It says, out of whom he had cast seven devils. Now, let's identify this person called Mary Magdalene as some uh, some get confused about who she is. And actually, well, really, that can be easy to do. Um, In the Bible, there are 12 verses uh, which speak of Mary Magdalene specifically. But only two speak of her as the one that was delivered of demons by Jesus. This is one here that we just read here in Mark 16. And then there's the one in Luke chapter 8 and verse 2. Luke 8 and verse 2 says, And certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Now this is interesting too. You know, I'll get to that in a second. But it says, And certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. 
So Mary wasn't the only one, the only uh, uh, woman, who Jesus had cast out evil spirits and healed. Remember, there was a group of these very devout ladies who followed Jesus uh, in his ministry, especially during the, his second Galilean tour. Um, they were the ones that were there when he died at the cross. Yeah, they were the ones that helped embalm him. They were the ones that came to the tomb. They were, there was a group of them. And, but it's very interesting. You read Mark 9. Who's the first person that Jesus appears to? It's Mary Magdalene. Jesus honored this woman. We'll find out as we discover who she, she is. He was honoring this lady for her faith and her devotion. So we read here in Luke 8 too that uh, again, Mary had seven devils uh, cast out of her. Who is this Mary? Who is it really that was the first to see Jesus after his resurrection? The first mention of her is in Matthew chapter 27 where it talks about the women who were followers of Christ and like I said before, watched his death from afar. Uh, Matthew mentions her twice more as one who watched Jesus being placed in the tomb and then upon his resurrection. So no, there's not much to glean from those verses except that she lived in, at one time she lived in Magdala and had become a devout follower of Christ. Um, Mark mentions her four times in connection with the same events but adds that she had been dispossessed of demons. Luke's first mention of her is here in chapter 8. And in the Gospels to this point, where we're at in Luke chapter 8, the only Marys that are mentioned are the mother of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. So the only two so far. Now we get to Luke 10, and we're introduced to someone named Mary who lives with her sister Martha and brother Lazarus there at Bethany. And, of course, this is the account where Jesus teaches Martha about seeking first the kingdom of God as Mary was doing when she was sitting at his feet. You remember that story. Um, now, could this Mary of Bethany be the same as the Mary from Magdala? Put that in the back of your mind. We'll get back to that in a minute. Um, Mary Magdalene is then mentioned in Luke 24 in connection again with the resurrection of Christ. And now we come to John, John chapter 11, and here Mary of Bethany is mentioned again. John 11 verse 1 says, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Now this really gets kind of interesting, because in the, in the, the next verse... John mentions that it was this Mary of Bethany that anointed Jesus with oil before he talks about the event itself in the very next chapter. He apparently assumes uh, that those who are reading up to this point are familiar with that story. You know? Kind of like an, oh, by the way, you know, you look at the very next verse, John eleven two. Oh, by the way, it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And then he goes on with the chapter. So, the Mary that is mentioned in John 11 is the same Mary of Bethany in John 12. Okay? John 12 and verse 3 says, Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. So far, we have three Marys that the Gospels are speaking about. We have the mother of Jesus, we have Mary Magdalene, and we have Mary of Bethany who anointed Jesus. Are you with me so far? In John 19, we're introduced to another Mary. John 19 and verse 25 says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. So we have four Marys now mentioned. We have the mother of Jesus, we have Mary Magdalene, we have Mary of Bethany who anointed Jesus, and we have Mary the wife of Cleopas. Do you know who Cleopas was? 
Cleopas was one of the uh, disciples that Jesus met on the road to Emmaus. So his wife's name was Mary. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that. I mean, are you confused yet? Has it become evident that the name Mary was very common at that time? You know why? In the Hebrew, Mary is actually Miriam, as in the sister of Moses. You know, this is a very common occurrence in our cultures. You, you know that? People, people name their children after someone they admire. In my family, there are several men named John. So when we talk about uh, John, we have to do what the Bible does when talking here in the Gospels about Mary. <laughs> we include a middle name, something like that. We say, oh, John Howard, or John D, or John Ed, you know. So people know exactly which John we're speaking about. And this was the case with the gospel writers who were talking about the different devout women there that followed Jesus. They were all named Mary. In John 20, we see, um, we see Mary Magdalene spoken of again at the resurrection. In Acts 12, it mentions Mary, the mother of John Mark. This Mary was related to Barnabas. And one last mention of a Mary is in Romans 16 that's different. So that's all the Marys that are mentioned in the New Testament. Five Marys total that are mentioned. That doesn't mean that's all the Marys that there were that were following Jesus. Okay? Now we want to learn something about this person, Mary of Magdalene. But it appears that not much is said about her in great detail except that she had been possessed of seven devils and once delivered became a very devout follower of Jesus. In fact, all these women were very faithful and devout. But other than the mother of Jesus, there are two Marys that have something special written about them. They were honored by the gospel writers. Uh, well, actually, they were honored by Christ. Mary Magdalene had seven devils cast out, and then Luke tells us that Mary Bethany anointed the feet of Jesus with expensive perfume. Is it possible that this is the same person? If so, why is she called Mary Magdalene in some places and just Mary in others? Well, I think if we take a quick look at Martha's sister, we can find our answer. Let's uh, take a look at that incident with Mary of Bethany who anointed Jesus. John chapter 12. John chapter, John chapter 12. We'll, look at, we'll begin with verse 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. Isn't that usually what Martha... She had that gift, didn't she? She wanted to be hospitable. She was a servant, you know. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples... Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why? And that's another thing. Judas, the name Judas was very prominent. It's about as prominent as the name Mary. And, and so, you know, it was always that third name, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. <laughs> and then it's almost always mentioned the traitor, the one who betrayed him, you know. And so here's, the Bible says, which uh, uh, then saith one of his disciples, Judas, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Now, this is talking about the feast at Simon the leper's house. Lazarus attended with his sisters, Martha and Mary. People came to this feast, a lot of the people came to this feast to see Lazarus because he'd been raised from the dead. And here, 
is the time that Mary anoints Jesus, and, and then she's rebuked by Judas. But we don't learn much from this account that helps us, uh, or do we? Uh, I think as we put all the gospel accounts together, we'll get an answer here. Uh, what about Matthew's account? Look at Matthew chapter 26, and we'll look at verses 6 to 9. Now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment, and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Simon was a Pharisee whom Jesus had healed of that dreaded leprosy. Not that he had leprosy at the time. I mean, he wouldn't have been... He was, if he had leprosy, you were barred from society. They removed you. So he didn't have it at the time. Jesus had sometime previously cured him of leprosy. And he, in turn, he gave this feast as an expression of his appreciation uh, for what Jesus had done. Simon considered himself a disciple. Uh, had openly associated himself with uh, the followers of Jesus, but he wasn't altogether convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. Lazarus was an honored guest there. Again, Martha served, and the the woman spoken of here in, in Matthew's account was Martha's sister Mary. Of course, she was a devout follower of Christ. So Mary takes expensive perfume. This is Mary of Bethany. She takes expensive perfume and she anoints Jesus. And what was the reaction? Um, Judas rebukes such waste, right? What was Simon's reaction? Well, Matthew doesn't give much detail about that, but Luke does, and it tells us something about Mary. So let's go to Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, verse 36 And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house. Now again, this was Simon the leper. He was a Pharisee. Leader. He was a Pharisee, he was a leader. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, who's the Pharisee? Simon the leper, right? So, it says, When the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, so he says to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on, and we go on uh, from there. Now, again, this feast took place where? It was in Bethany. And it took place on the day preceding Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, less than one week before his crucifixion. Furthermore, Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead not more than a couple months before that, was included as a guest of honor along with Jesus. And so the Bible tells us Simon was on one side of Jesus and Lazarus was on the other as the guests of honor, that was a custom, And they were reclined there to take of the meal. So Simon was reclining next to Jesus, and he'd be one of the first people at the table to smell the perfume and notice what was going on. And so according to the Greek, Simon at this point had reached the conclusion that Jesus wasn't a prophet. Or he would have known better what kind of woman Mary really was. And Simon was apparently unaware that Jesus knew very well what manner of woman Mary was. Now a question, how did Simon know what manner of woman Mary was? Huh? Oopsie. Right? 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 (laughs) 
I'm going to share a lot with you today out of the book Desire of Ages. Incredible book. Wonderful book. Desire of Ages, pages 557 uh, to 566 here. I'm not going to read all those pages, of course, but... Speaking of this event, notice what, what we read here. It says, Simon of Bethany was accounted a disciple of Jesus. He was one of the few Pharisees who had openly joined Christ's followers. He acknowledged Jesus as a teacher and hoped that he might be the Messiah, but he had not accepted him as a Savior. His character was not transformed. His principles were unchanged. Simon had been healed of the leprosy. So notice this. Jesus heals Simon of the leprosy. That's what draws him to Jesus. He's not convinced Jesus is the Messiah. But he knows he, he, he does some powerful things in God's name. So he openly acknowledges him and follows him, right? It says, Simon had been healed of the leprosy, and it was this that had drawn him to Jesus. He desired to show his gratitude, and at Christ's last visit to Bethany, he made a feast for the Savior and his disciples. Simon the host had been influenced by the criticism of Judas upon Mary's gift. Remember, Judas stood up and said, what about this waste? And she says, and he was surprised at the conduct of Jesus. His Pharisaic pride was offended. He knew that many of his guests were looking upon Christ with distrust and displeasure. Simon said in his heart, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what man or woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. By curing Simon of leprosy, Christ had saved him from a living death. But now Simon questioned whether the Savior were a prophet. Because Christ allowed this woman to approach him, because he did not indignantly spurn her as one whose sins were too great to be forgiven, <laughs> yeah, because he did not show that he realized she had fallen, Simon was tempted to think that he was not a prophet. Jesus knows nothing of this woman who is so free in her demonstrations, he thought, or he would not allow her to touch him. Here's the kicker. She says, Simon had led into sin the woman he now despised. Wow. She had been deeply wronged by him. Wow. By the two debtors of the parable. See, because then Jesus gave the parable. I never read, read past that. But she says, By the two debtors of the parable, Simon and the woman were represented. Jesus did not design to teach that different degrees of obligation should be felt by the two persons, for each owed a debt of gratitude that never could be repaid. But Simon felt himself more righteous than Mary... And Jesus desired him to see how great his guilt really was. He would show him that his sin was greater than hers, as much greater as a debt of 500 pence exceeds a debt of 50 pence. So what did she tell us here? She said, Simon is the one who led this woman into sin. She had been deeply wronged by him. She was the one that got on the So we learned that it was Simon... And who was Simon? He was a Pharisee. He was a leader in the church. He'd led Mary into sin. Desire of Ages, page 568. Mary had been looked upon as a great sinner, but Christ knew the circumstances. This is comforting. should be comforting to every one of us, friends. Christ knew the circumstances that had shaped her life. He might have extinguished every spark of hope in her soul, but he didn't. It was he who had lifted her from despair and ruin. Seven times she had heard his rebuke of the demons that controlled her heart and mind. Okay, back up the truck. Yeah. Who is the woman who was cast out, had seven demons cast out of her? Yeah. Mary Magdalene. Who's the woman who anointed Jesus with oil? Mary of Bethany. Same woman. It's the same woman, isn't it? She just moved to a different town. 
She had heard his strong cries to the Father in her behalf. She knew how offensive his sin to his unsullied purity, and in his strength she had overcome. When to humanize her case appeared hopeless, Christ saw in Mary capabilities for good. Praise God that he does that with every one of us, friends. He saw the better traits of her character. The plan of redemption has invested humanity with great possibilities, and in Mary these possibilities were to be realized. Through his grace she became a partaker of the divine nature. The one who had fallen, whose mind had been a habitation of demons was brought very near to the Savior in fellowship and ministry. Notice this. It was Mary who sat at his feet and learned of him. It was Mary who poured upon his head the precious anointing oil and bathed his feet with her tears. Mary stood beside the cross and followed him to the sepulcher. Mary was first at the tomb after his resurrection. It was Mary who first proclaimed a risen Savior. What have we learned in just these two quotes here? Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdalene are the same person. Is it any wonder Mary fled from Bethany? That's where Simon lived. Mary had become a sinner, and it was because of, and of course we just found out, Simon's the one who led her into it. And it was because of her terrible sins that she left Bethany to save herself and her family from public shame. So she found her a home in Magdala. I mean, you know, maybe with friends or, or relatives who lived there, or maybe alone, and she eventually became possessed with demons. You know, a majority of the recorded um, incidents of Jesus' Galilean ministry took place in the vicinity of the plain of Gennesaret. And that's where Magdala was. That's where it was situated. And it was probably the case that upon one of his early visits to Magdala, he freed her from demon possession. She then became a devout follower of Christ and returned to Bethany, a changed person, and again made her home there with her brother and sister. So we can see that Mary Magdalene and Mary Bethany, they're the same person. Now some commentators say that Mary Magdalene is the same woman that was caught in adultery and brought to to Jesus by those wishing to stone her. And there are some things that seem to make this idea plausible and, and, and would explain what kind of sin that Simon would have led Mary into, which would also indicate that Particular sins may just open us up more readily to possession demons than others. But I'm not convinced this woman is Mary Magdalene. I'm not convinced it's the same person. It's true that Jesus was near Olivet uh, when this happened. You know, they brought the woman there. And Bethany is close to Olivet. But according to the Mishnah, and the Mishnah is... How do I describe the Mishnah? The Mishnah is what's called the Oral Torah. The Torah is the five books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, But according to the Mishnah, a woman caught in adultery was to be strangled and not stoned. But a woman that was betrothed that was caught in adultery or fornication uh, was to be stoned. And there's no record that I'm aware of that says Mary Magdalene was married or betrothed. Not saying she never was, but we don't have a record of that. But I will tell you, though, that this woman that Jesus forgave became as devoted a follower as was Mary Magdalene. And it is even very possible that her name was Mary as well. We just don't know. And and she was so devoted, she was even there at the cross when Jesus died. She was a part of that group. Notice this from the Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 2, page 352. This penitent woman became one of the firmest friends of Jesus. This is the woman that was caught in adultery that was brought out to be stoned. She repaid his forgiveness and compassion with a self-sacrificing love and worship. Afterward, when she stood sorrow-stricken at the foot of the cross and saw the dying agony on the face of her Lord and heard his bitter cry, her soul was pierced afresh. 
for she knew that this sacrifice was on account of sin, and her responsibility as one of those, one whose deep guilt had helped to bring about this anguish of the Son of God seemed very heavy indeed. I'll tell you, friends, and we're now, now the greater context that we're looking at here in our study, spiritual possession, we're looking at demon possession. The sin of adultery is really abominable to God. It's very abominable. Um, and, and, and in that greater context, spiritually speaking, idolatry is spiritual adultery. Meaning that you have spiritual fornication with other gods. But to put it plain, you worship false gods. That's committing spiritual adultery. Think back in our, our studies that we've looked at so far. Um, the woman of Canaan came to Jesus, remember? Seeking help and casting out the demon that possessed her child. And Canaan was a land that was filled with what? It was filled with idols and the worship of false gods. So we see a common thread here, don't we? In that there is the actual and spiritual sin of adultery. And what, is, what does that lead to? And maybe a better way of saying is it leads to, can lead to, to, to demon possession much quicker than maybe some others. But we have that woman there at Canaan. Now think about how different Mary's surroundings were to the woman of Canaan. Mary was a Jew. She lived with her sister Martha and brother Lazarus, so she was surrounded by like believers. Her family was well known in Bethany. It would seem that she would be more protected against demons, especially demon possession. Right? Now, I don't believe she was possessed while she was in Bethany, but became possessed while living a sinful life there in Magdala, and that's why she's referred to as Mary Magdalene as it points to that terrible, sinful life and possession, demon possession, uh, and that life that led to, to demon possession. But originally she was what? She was a young lady from a good Jewish family that attended church. It reminds me, as I, I was thinking about this, it reminded me of what I've, I've heard others say uh, to me about children, the children of ministers or pastors that they usually turn out to be the biggest sinners or some such. And I have to admit there is, there is evidence of that. You know, But let me ask you, who do you think garnishes more and stronger attacks from Satan than a leader for God? And don't misunderstand me what I'm saying here. I'm just pointing out that an enemy will always put forth more effort to destroy a general of an army than a private in that army, though both of them fight in the war. You see what I'm saying? So Mary of Bethany would seem to be in a good spiritual atmosphere to the naked eye, wouldn't she? But she was led by another church member, a church leader, influenced by that member to wickedness and that opened her up to demon possession. Don't you think that demons would love to gain possession of those who are right in the middle of a good family in the middle of church? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, we see in this example... What? We see that demons can possess those in our church family. And if we're not careful, we can even be led by church members and leaders into sin, and that can open us up to demon possession. That's why the Bible says, Study to show yourself approved unto God. Friends. So, Mary Magdalene, Mary the sister of Martha and Lazarus, same person. Good family, a Jew surrounded by the truth, even though there were a lot of uh, uh, traditions that were taught and lived instead of the truth. 
but she was led. Trusting in her pastor, maybe. See what I'm saying? Check me out. So I go, uh, Pastor Brooks would always say, check me out. You need to go to the Bible and check me out what I'm saying. It's also possible for church leadership to become possessed of demons. Even someone who may appear to be very close to Christ. Would you agree with that? Well, let's look at John chapter 6. We transition here to a different example. John chapter 6 verse 69 begin there. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. That is, one inspired by the devil. So he said, Hey, have not I chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. John 13 verse 2 says, And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. As with Mary, the name Judas, like I mentioned earlier, was very common at that time. Judas is the equivalent in the Old Testament to the name Judah. Yeah, like the tribe of Judah. Judas was probably the only one of the twelve that wasn't a native of Galilee. (laughs) He was the son of a man named Simon. Isn't that interesting? Simon the leper. (laughs) Simon, another common name. Jesus had not summoned Judas to join the group of disciples from which he selected the twelve, but Judas, Judas kind of intruded among them and asked for a place. He was from a well to do family. A well-known family, just like Simon the leper. His family was well-known, just like uh, um, Lazarus. His family was well-known. So Judas had the luxuries of life. Okay. Now, Judas doubtless believed Jesus to be the Messiah, like the other disciples, um, in terms of the popular... Jewish conception of a political deliverer from the yoke of Rome, and he desired membership in the inner circle of disciples in order for what? Just like the rest of them. To secure a high position in the kingdom, right? That was going to be established. And perhaps he volunteered for the position of treasurer, hoping for an appointment to that office in the new kingdom. However, as we just read, Jesus realized from the very first that Judas was, well, he was lacking uh, in those basic traits that would qualify him to become an apostle of the kingdom. But in spite of all the evil that was latent in the heart of Judas, he was in many respects, if you think about it, more promising than the others that Jesus called. He was very educated. So when he was admitted to membership with the Twelve, he wasn't beyond hope, was he? The nurture and the the development of certain desirable traits of character, um, together with the elimination of those evil traits, might have made him an acceptable worker in the cause of, of Christ. But unlike John, Judas steeled his heart against the precepts and example of Jesus. And nevertheless, though, Jesus gave him every encouragement, every opportunity to develop a righteous character. That's why he drew him so close to himself. Now we look at Luke 22 and verse 3. Luke 22 and verse 3 says, Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, because being of the number of the twelve. What happened? Satan entered into Judas. 
Now I'll tell you that the action of Judas wasn't a surprise to Jesus, was it? And this was Judas's first contact with the Jewish leaders for the purpose of betraying Christ. John makes the same observation concerning the experience of Judas at the, the time of his third and final contact with those Jewish leaders on the night of the betrayal. Look at John 13, verse 27. And after the, the sop, this is here at the Last Supper, and after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. You ever wonder why Jesus said that? Why would Jesus say that to Judas? First of all, did Jesus recognize that that Judas was demon-possessed? Well, obviously, right? So was that a chance to, like, I know what you're going to do? You can change Actually, well, that can be part of it. I know what you're going to do. Let's get... Well, actually, time was running out, in essence. You know, because there was prophecy to be fulfilled. There were certain things that had to be done to fulfill prophecy as they go through the trial and all this stuff. So Jesus is saying, get moving. Do you think he's actually speaking to Judas or is he speaking to Satan? Yeah, think about that. But here it says, after the sop, Satan entered into him. That is, Satan took complete possession of him. Up to this point, there'd still been an opportunity for Jesus, uh, Judas to repent, but right here is when he passed the boundary line. So we can see in the life of Judas, and sometime may, I may preach on this specifically, Judas, um, and, and you'll be able to see it more clearly. Uh, the life of Judas essentially is like a step-by-step process that leads to demon possession. This is from the Desire of Ages, page 645. Desire of Ages, 645. The constraining power of that love was felt by Judas, talking about Jesus here, when the Savior's hands were bathing those soiled feet and wiping them with the towel the heart of Judas thrilled through and through with the impulse then and there to confess his sin. But he would not humble himself. So, you know, in the coming weeks here, we talk about what can open us up to the possession of demons. Look at this right here. We need to confess our sin when we have the opportunity to. Isn't that true? says he would not humble himself. We need to be humble. She says he hardened his heart against repentance and the old impulses for the moment put aside again controlled him. Judas was now offended at Christ's act in washing the feet of his disciples. If Jesus could so humble himself, he thought, he could not be Israel's king. All hope of worldly honor in a temporal kingdom was destroyed. Judas was satisfied that there was nothing to be gained by following Christ. After seeing him degrade himself... Now, doesn't that tell you right off the bat? The attitude? Judas was satisfied that there was nothing to be gained by following Christ. After seeing him degrade himself, as he thought, he was confirmed in his purpose to disown him and confess himself deceived. She says, he was possessed by a demon and he resolved to complete the work he had agreed to do in betraying his Lord. Step by step in Judas's life. There were times when he would see Jesus and the example of Jesus and it would, it would pound on his heart, but he kept going back to his old impulses. He wouldn't change. Have you ever run into... And friends, I don't want to get too personal here because 
I think it would be fair to say that each one of us have been there. Truth is brought to us, and our first impulse reaction a lot of times in this, and self, you've heard me say it many times, self will not put self to death. Self does not commit suicide. Self has to be murdered. That's what Jesus says. Crucify self. It has to be murdered. I wouldn't say murdered. It has to be killed. That's a better way of saying it. It has to be put to death. And we've been there. We need to be very careful. When Jesus shares light to you know with, with us, we have to be careful what our reaction to that is. It can lead to something that we really don't know that we're learning. Actually, it can lead to becoming possessed. It opens us up, doesn't it? She says right here, he was possessed by a demon. Let's go to Matthew twenty-six. Matthew 26, again, we're, still, we're looking at Judas here. She says he was possessed of a demon. Matthew 26, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted, covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. You know, 30 pieces of silver is very interesting. At the very time, uh, you know, you look in history and and uh, at that particular time when Jesus, uh, this last week before the crucifixion, the price of a, a slave at that time was 30 pieces of silver. Isn't that interesting? Do you know that the uh, brothers of Joseph, when they sold him into slavery... The, time, the, the price for a slave at that time was 20 pieces of silver. That's why when you read back then, they sold him for 20 pieces of silver. So the price for a slave had gone up. Inflation, you know. But the sermon in the synagogue at Capernaum about a year earlier, you read about in John 6, had been the turning point in the history of Judas. And though outwardly he remained with the twelve, in his heart he had deserted Christ. And remember, that act of devotion of Mary of Bethany, here's how it ties in, friends. Jesus' commendation of Mary's act of devotion at Simon's feast, which was an indirect condemnation of Judas' own attitude, is what spurred him into action. And I think to myself, how strange. How strange that... Mary's supreme act of love for Jesus would provoke Judas to his supreme deed of disloyalty. But in going to the chief priests, Judas acted under what? The inspiration of the devil, because he was what? He was possessed. And what was the uppermost in his mind when he offered to betray Christ? Personal advantage. In fact, personal advantage had come to be the dominant motive of his entire life. Personal advantage is just another way of saying selfishness, isn't it? Back to the book Desire of Ages, page 720. Yet, now notice this. Now we're talking about, we looked at Mary Magdalene and we we found that Mary Magdalene and Mary Bethany are the same person, right? And Mary of Bethany, she, she was surrounded by like believers. She was a church member from a well-known family, devout, known as a devout family. And she had seven devils. She was led into sin, had seven devils. Here's, here's a, a leader in the church, the treasurer of all people in Christ's organization. And he appeared to be extremely pious, didn't he? Notice this, page 720. Yet Judas made no open opposition, nor seemed to question the Savior's lessons. He made no outward murmur 
until the time of the feast in Simon's house. When Mary anointed the Savior's feet, Judas manifested his covetous disposition. At the reproof from Jesus, his very spirit seemed turned to gall. Wounded pride and desire for revenge broke down the barriers, and the greed so long indulged held him in control. What she mean by greed so long indulged? What position did Judas hold? He was the treasurer. In the Gospels it says that he's the one who had the bag. He carried the bag. In, in, in the Greek that means the money box. <laughs> he carried the money box. And he dipped into the till. And she says, And the greed so long indulged him, indulged, held him in control. This will be the experience, notice what she says here, this will be the experience of everyone who persists in tampering with sin. Wow. We're talking about demon possession. And what does she say? This will be the experience of everyone who persists in tampering with sin. That's an incredible statement. The elements of depravity that are not resisted and overcome respond to Satan's temptation and the soul is led captive at his will. That's serious stuff, isn't it? To all appearances, Judas was a pious church member holding a leadership position, but what held control over Judas? What did she say? It was the sin of greed. And this cherished sin led him down the path to demon possession. From the book Education, page 92. Lesson after lesson was thus given, and many a time Judas realized that his character had been portrayed and his sin pointed out. But he would not yield. Mercy's pleading resisted. The impulse of evil bore final sway. Judas, angered at an implied rebuke and made desperate by the disappointment of his ambitious dreams, surrendered his soul to the demon of greed and determined upon the betrayal of his master. From the Passover chamber, the joy of Christ's presence and the light of immortal hope, he went forth to his evil work into the outer darkness where hope was not. Probation closed on Judas. He made his final choice, didn't he? He grieved the Holy Spirit. Signs of the Times, January 13, 1888. He cultivated a spirit of greed till the desirableness of Christ in heaven was eclipsed. This plague spot in his soul spread like a destroying leprosy, till the whole man was corrupted. Noble liberty was left to wither. Every unselfish purpose was darkened until the hope of obtaining a few paltry dollars led him to betray his Savior. Now, I want you to notice this next statement. It's from Signs of the Times, December 18, 1893. Remember we are talking about some sins may seem to open us up to, to maybe quicker demon possession. That might be a, a way of explaining it. Um, I talked about that theme of idolatry. You know, wherever there's idolatry, the worship of false gods and, and adultery. She says, and what, what is it that we found that, that, that Judas, he was had the demon of greed, right? Covetousness. You could say, right? She says this. She says, Covetousness, which is idolatry, had been cultivated and had strengthened in his heart, and when temptation came upon him, he was held under its control. The covetous greed that Judas had indulged for years now held in control and overpowered every other characteristic of his nature. He harmonized with the drawings of Satan and evil triumphed as he yielded to temptation. Although he was professedly a follower of Jesus, yet he was in heart 
strengthening the evil of his character. Now think about this for a moment, and let's compare some things. The woman of Canaan lived in a land filled with the worship of idols and false gods, and she had a daughter who was possessed of a devil. Mary Magdalene's sin was most likely adultery, fornication, and she became possessed of seven devils. Judas was controlled by greed, and in some places the spirit of prophecy calls it, like I just read, the demon of greed, which is interesting. Uh, So in these three instances, examples, we see kind of a theme, don't we? Idolatry, adultery, and greed, or better, covetousness. And again, idolatry is spiritual adultery. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 306. I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. The close and, close and sacred relation of God to his people is represented under the figure of marriage. Idolatry being spiritual adultery. The displeasure of God against it is fitly called jealousy. I want to read you something else. Signs of the Times, March 4th, 1897. In his Sermon on the Mount, he explained the law, showing what each precept comprehended. Covetousness was shown by him to be, what? Idolatry. Lust, adultery, and anger, murder. He made manifest the spirituality of the law and pointed out that it reaches to every phase of life. Now, don't get me wrong, friends. Any cherished sin can open us up to demon possession. But it does make one wonder if there are some sins that may just speed up the process, like idolatry, adultery, which is you know fornication, and covetousness. Because this seems to be a reoccurring thread in the examples that we've looked at uh, so far in our studies. And friends, look around at the world around us. Look around at our society today. What are some of the basest of sins we see at the forefront, if not idolatry, fornication, and covetousness? Which is... Idolatry. I'm telling you, the sides are becoming more and more clear between those possessed of the Spirit of Christ and those possessed of the Spirit of Antichrist. Something else we saw with Judas that we need to to understand as well. And that's that the devil put thoughts into his heart and his mind. John thirteen two, And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And this can happen to anyone. That's referred to essentially as temptation. Temptations are essentially suggestions and inclinations to sway the mind to reject Christ or accept him. And we'll get into to more of that when we get into our series about what sin is and temptation and all those things. But um, look at Matthew sixteen twenty three, where Jesus said uh, unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. He didn't say, Get thee behind me, Peter, did he? He's talking to who? He was talking to Peter, wasn't he? And he said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Demons can put thoughts into our minds, and they can speak through us. We've seen this before, haven't we? We've seen that that's what happens with those who are demon-possessed. This doesn't mean that we are (laughs) demon-possessed, but we can be used by the devil. Look at the Desire of Ages, Desire of Ages, page 416. Satan was trying to discourage Jesus and turn him from his mission. And Peter, 
in his blind love, she said, was giving voice to the temptation. The prince of evil was the author of the thought. His instigation was behind that impulsive appeal. In the wilderness, Satan had offered Christ the dominion of the world on condition of forsaking the path of humiliation and sacrifice. Now, he was presenting the same temptation to the disciple of Christ. He was seeking to fix Peter's gaze upon the earthly glory. That's why I tell people to keep looking up and not at this world. He was seeking to fix Peter's gaze upon the earthly glory that he might not behold the cross to which Jesus desired to turn his eyes. And through Peter, Satan was again pressing the temptation upon Jesus. Did you see what it was that allowed Satan to speak through Peter? She says that it was through Peter's blind love for Christ. Now, What does she mean by blind love? In many places, she also refers to this as love-sick sentimentalism, which is pure emotional love without reasoning. And just a hint here, music to a great degree bypasses our reasoning center of the brain. I'm going to talk about that in, in... sometime in another part of the series here. Signs of the Times, July 1st, 1903. Blind love, she said. This blind love, this lovesick sentimentalism can allow Satan to speak through us, to tempt others. She says, that love which has no better foundation than mere sensual gratification will be headstrong, Blind and uncontrollable. Honor, truth, and every noble, elevated power of the mind are brought under the slavery of passions. The man who is bound in the chains of this infatuation is too often deaf to the voice of reason and conscience. Neither argument nor entreaty can lead him to see the folly of his course. And like I said before, there are only two spirits in this world, the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of Antichrist. And the Spirit of of Christ is true love. For John tells us that God is love, and that's that agape, that self-sacrificing charity. The Spirit of Antichrist has a counterfeit love, which is a blind, lovesick sentimentalism based purely upon the fleshly passions. And again, you know, we'll talk about this more as we get into looking at those things that may open us up for demon possession. So, we've looked at an example of a church member from a good church family who was led to sin by another church member uh, and, that, and, and leader of the church, which led to her being possessed by seven demons. We've looked at a church leader who was next to Christ and the steps that led to him being possessed of the devil and thus betraying Christ. And in a previous lesson we read where, remember the Sanhedrin, leaders of the entire church body at that time were possessed by Satan and condemned Jesus to death. So it appears that not only can many demons possess an individual, but many demons can also possess a group. I mean, we saw with the demoniacs of Gergesa, that the demons controlled a herd of swine. Can they control a herd or a mob of people? We're going to take a look at that the next time we get to, together. And uh, again, I hope, that, uh, I hope that you're learning some things here so that we can be drawn closer to Christ and have the armor we need to fight this foe. Because remember, we've learned this is, this is going to be one of the things that follows the, the, the believers of Christ as we get down to the final battle. And that's part of it is casting out demons. So we need to know our enemy. And we need to be armed against him. And uh, let's pray to that. To that right now. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we again thank you so much for a wonderful Sabbath. We thank you that you created this day that we can come together and and rest in uh, in uh, the spiritual warfare that we have during the week. And we can learn from your feet as Mary did. And that we can take what we learn 
and uh, spread the truth of the gospel around in, in our warfare against this defeated foe. We pray, Lord, that you will continue to be with us not only throughout this day, uh, but until Jesus returns. We thank you for the angels you send to help us in this warfare. We pray that you will send mighty and strong angels to surround us and our children especially, our family members, and the church. And Father, we thank you so much for your mercy towards us. We thank you for the forgiveness that you've promised us. And we look forward to the time when Jesus comes and all the temptations and all the sins are destroyed forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.